0: So, Church Christmas teaches us that God's timing is absolutely sufficient. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit This is Shoreline.com. As we open the Word of God this morning, we are gonna be in Galatians chapter four. We've been studying the book of Galatians for the last several months, and next week we conclude the book, but we are gonna revisit a verse that we covered in chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, or Bible app, go to Galatians chapter four, and we're covering one verse today. It's Galatians four verse four. I'm going to read it, pray, and then we will begin. Galatians four four says this, the English Standard Version. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are the God of the manger, the one who came from heaven to earth to become one of us, to bear our sin in your body on the tree, to take the penalty and the wrath that we deserve. And yet, Jesus, you, that same baby born into a manger was the same one lifted up on the cross and yet who rose victorious from the grave. And so we thank you that you have come, that Christ has come incarnate in the flesh, and today, Lord, we celebrate that and we turn our hearts in worship to you, Father. Thank you for sending your son, and I pray that, Lord, we would understand what we're gonna study today, that we would leave transformed by your grace. We just commit this time to you and pray that you'd be exalted and glorified through your word, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen. Can you remember a time that you were so late for something that you just almost decided, let's just cancel. Let's just not even go. Someone says, yeah, for church this morning. <laughs> I heard what he said last week about being laid. <laughs> well... Ultimately, I'm someone who hates being late. I I never like to arrive late, and unfortunately, that just seems to happen from time to time. We find ourselves strolling in casually late to the Christmas party. We find ourselves kind of sauntering in at that casual hour or so after the start time. And and so that's something I hate and I never want to have, but it's a reality. Now, some of us are experts in just kind of smoothly coming in at our time, right? There is no special time. It's our time. And we kind of set our pace by our time. Many Christians are known to believe in three things, justification, regeneration, and procrastination. Uh, I've certainly met people that way. And some have said, you know, that's why Jesus didn't reveal the time of his second coming, because Christians would be late for that. So anyway, (laughs) we, we understand what it's like to have a time constraint at work and a deadline, and a lot of us have our timetable, but did you know that God has a timetable as well, that God actually has a, a time that he desired to step into history, and his timing is absolutely perfect. In other words, God is never early, and he's, even though we disagree with him, he's never ever late. And the incarnation, the truth that we celebrate at Christmas, reminds us that Jesus came from heaven to earth at just the right time. And that's where Galatians 4.4 comes in. Paul the Apostle was writing this letter to churches that met in the region of Galatia. And his purpose in writing to them was to correct some legalistic influences that had come into the church and had steered people away from the ideas of grace, the concept of grace, and was moving them, these people were moving them to legalism, and so Paul was writing to remind them of the power of the gospel, and in chapter four, he brings it home to speak about the incarnation, which is, of course, the coming of the Lord Jesus to be born, not as a slave, but as a son. He is the rightful heir of the promise and the one through whom we're redeemed. So look at Galatians 4.4. Uh, And we're gonna look at three big ideas this morning about Christmas and what it teaches us. The first thing that we're gonna see is, number one, we'll put it on the screen, Christmas teaches us that God's timing is sufficient. God's timing is sufficient. Notice in verse four that it says, but when the fullness of time had come. If you have your own Bible, would you circle that phrase or underline it if it's not already highlighted? That's a key idea the fullness of time, that God stepped into time, and God's timing was absolutely perfect. I want you to think about the timing with which Jesus came. In other words, he didn't come in 2019, but he came at a time that was absolutely perfect. You and I don't put manger scenes as decor around our house uh, because the birth of Jesus was a normal birth. We don't do that. It was an absolutely different and unique birth. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says this about the birth of Jesus, and if you go to Shoreline any regular amount of time, you know, we quote Spurgeon almost every Sunday. I missed one a few weeks ago, and someone said, no Spurgeon today? So Charles Spurgeon said, the birth of Jesus is the grandest light of history. It's the sun in the heavens of all time. It is the pole star of human destiny, the hinge of chronology and the meeting place of the waters of the past and the future. I would say it's an important event, wouldn't you? This is a key moment. Now, before Jesus was born, the time had to be right. He had to come at just the right time, and there needed to be an intersection of necessary things in the world for Jesus to arrive. Think about for a minute the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the difference between Malachi, where we end the Old Testament, and Matthew, where we begin the New. Uh, From the time of Malachi to the time of John the Baptist, there was an awkward silence where there was no prophetic voice being uttered. After the last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, much had changed in the culture from the Old Testament to the New. So when we leave Malachi, worship of God still took place in the temple. When we get to Matthew, now we have synagogues. When when the Israelites came back from captivity with Ezra and Nehemiah's watch, they reestablished the identity of Israel as a nation. But in the New Testament... We have someone else in charge. We have Rome. Uh, When we look in the Old Testament, we see the shepherds of Israel uh, who were the prophets. But when Jesus comes along, the shepherds are known as these group of men known as the Pharisees and Sadducees and a religious ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Even the Hebrew language, the traditional language, was replaced by a street language called Koine Greek. So a lot of things had changed, but this was all God working the field's Uh, getting them white for harvest. So there were a few political and social and economic and religious and cultural changes that set the stage. And I just want to walk through those really quickly. So if you're taking note, some political changes took place. The The Roman Empire was now in control over Israel. And Pontius Pilate was the governing body over the region with Herod the Great, the appointed Jewish leader over Israel. And I've said this before, Herod the Great wasn't really that great. He was actually a despicable man, a guy who constantly feared losing his power, even to the point where he resorted to having his family members killed, uh, fearing that they were going to be a conspirator. So he executed much of his family. Herod the Great had a lust for keeping his power intact, even when it cost thousands, if not millions, of innocent babies lives. Not exactly the guy you'd want on the cover of Time Magazine's Man of the Year. This is Herod the not-so-great. And so Rome was fully in charge, and that caused people to say, well, what do we do? How do we respond to Rome? There's kind of one of three responses. One was just to kind of go along with it and grin and bear it and grit your teeth. But the second response was to uh, make friends with the empire. And so many people took political positions and became tax collectors. Jesus actually approached one of these men named Levi and invited him to follow after Jesus. And these were despised, hated men because they were taxing their own people. So that's kind of the second response. Then the third response is to start a coup and to have a, an uprising, to rebel and revolt. So there's a group of politically passionate idealists, and they began to question the status quo, and we call them zealots, and they were way more zealous than anything you've seen on CNN or Fox News this past week. They were absolutely vehemently political, and they said Rome should no longer be the governing body. Let's overthrow the government, and they cried out for their Messiah to come and be a political leader. Now, Jesus Remember, he had Levi Matthew, the tax collector, from that one group. And then he also invited a guy named Simon the Zealot, one of those guys, to hang out. So you imagine now putting those two together in a room. No wonder they're constantly arguing over who's the greatest, right? I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And then, of course, Peter steps in and beats everybody. And so no wonder it took Jesus an entire night of prayer to make sure he was picking the right people. Uh, It took him an entire evening. Uh, So that's the political scene. Socially, the traditional language of Hebrew was being replaced by a street language known as Koine Greek. Now thankfully, this language was used at the street level and allowed you across all of the different cultures in that region to begin to have a common language. Like today you go to the ATM and it's English and Spanish. Those are kind of the two languages in Florida and in South Florida, Spanish, right? Those are the two languages. And in the day of Jesus, the the Koine Greek was the common language. It was the street language that everyone spoke. Now, decades before Jesus walked on this earth, the Old Testament was translated into a version that everyone can understand, uh, and we call this the Septuagint. So socially, there was now a language that could connect all these different people groups. Now, religiously, there was a big change. The synagogue, which was kind of the local congregation of ten or more Jewish men, began sprouting up all over the countryside. So the the centralized worship in the temple was now spreading out to the countryside. As long as you had ten or more men who were Jews, you could start your own kind of local synagogue. And so these began springing up everywhere. And traveling rabbis would move around the circuit as itinerant preachers, bringing God's word to different synagogues. And this was how Jesus and Paul began their ministries, and it was a part of God's sovereign plan to allow the gospel to already have a network through which it could easily spread. So even in the midst of this grassroots revival and spread of Judaism, there was still internally kind of a lostness, a deadness, a lack of prophetic revelation. 400 years since God had spoken, there was this promise of Elijah who would come and usher in the Messiah and yet nothing on the horizon. And so in the midst of silence and tumultuous political and religious rumblings as society stood on the brink and said, we're crying out for deliverance. Isn't there anyone who will come and save? And being able to understand one another, being able to rely on uh, the future, God was beginning to till the soil to begin a great new chapter of his grace and truth. So Jesus was born at just the right time, a time of relative peace, with Rome in command, with roads that connected cities with one another, where there was a common language and a deep spiritual hunger along with a national religious bankruptcy. The fruit was ripe, the stage was set. At just the right time, Christ came into the world. And I'll add this, the timing of God is and always is sovereignly decreed and perfectly executed. So that's the first thing we learned about Christmas. We learned that it's God's perfect time and his timing is sufficient. But secondly, Christmas teaches us, look on the screen, that God's son was sent. Look at this verse again, verse 4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Notice that it doesn't say that Jesus happened to be born, but that God sent his son. Jesus was sent on a mission. God had been telling us for hundreds, even thousands of years, that Jesus would be coming to save us. And he had been telling us through the Old Testament prophets. Look on the screen. Let me show you some of these examples. We're told in the Bible, way before it happened, that a descendant from Eve will destroy Satan and be physically harmed. Right from the very opening pages of scripture. That's Jesus. We're told in 2 Samuel 7 that the Messiah will be a descendant from David and his rule and reign will never end. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. We hear in Genesis 49.10 that this Messiah will be a member of the tribe of Judah. That's Jesus. That he'll be a child, according to Micah 5.2 and Isaiah 7, who would be born in Bethlehem and born of a virgin. That's Jesus. Numbers 24.17 says that this birth would be accompanied by an astronomical event. Of course, the star in the sky. That's Jesus. Jeremiah tells us that he would be a man who would be the source of righteousness, And we've learned this in our study, that that your source of righteousness is not your own good works, your good deeds. If you're here today and you believe that that's how you're going to be saved, you're going to be approved into heaven and have eternal life because of your own righteousness. You're gravely mistaken. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Only Christ alone can save. And his righteousness alone is our source of righteousness. And Jeremiah tells us ahead of time, that's Jesus. Finally, Isaiah 53 is a fascinating uh, chapter that predicts that this man would suffer and be beaten and bruised and striped. And that's Jesus. Now, what are the chances of just those prophecies, I don't know how many are there, seven, being fulfilled in one man? What are the chances of that happening? Someone might say, well, that could happen. That might happen. Well, there's a a book called Science Speaks, and Peter Stoner applies probability to eight, eight of the prophecies of Christ. And Here's what he says. In his book, he says, the chance that any one man might have fulfilled all eight of these prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th. Now, you don't seem impressed. Let me me clarify that. One, uh, that's a one with 17 zeros after it. So you could say that Jesus is one in 100 million million million. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. He's that amazing. Now, Stoner suggests that Here's an illustration, I've shared this before, but if you took that many silver dollars, so we took one, uh, or take 10 to the 17th silver dollars, which none of us ever look at or have, but if we took a silver dollar and we took that many, I don't know how you got them, but you got them and then you decided to cover the state of Texas, you could actually cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now, some of you are, anybody from Texas here? I know some of y'all are here. No, no one's here? All right, yeah, I mean, you guys are usually loud when you hear people from Texas. They're like, yes, big blue sky. So uh, we've driven through Texas, and I don't know, it took several days just to get through the state. And so this is significant. If you were to cover the entire state two feet deep, that's how many um, silver dollars it would take to cover the entire state two feet deep. Now what we would do is we'd fly over the state of Texas and we would take one silver dollar and we'd color it red and we'd toss it out the window and it would land somewhere on the state of Texas and maybe get enveloped into the, into the two feet of silver dollars and then I'm gonna blindfold you and then I'm gonna throw you out of an airplane with a parachute and then you're gonna land somewhere in the state of Texas, reach in on your first grab and pull out that red coin. That is the same um, probability of one man fulfilling only eight of these prophecies. Yet as Pastor Micah was singing and and sharing earlier, over 300 prophecies foretell the coming of Jesus. This is incredible news, church. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, written hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus was born. But listen, Jesus wasn't just born, he was sent. The incarnation of Christ was not an afterthought, It wasn't that Jesus was a good man and decided to kind of put on the Christ idea or put on messiahship. No, this was the very intended will of God. Jesus declared over and over throughout his public ministry that he was sent by the Father. He was commissioned as a missionary to earth to become a man, to fulfill the law, to bear our sin, to put an end to transgression to set captives free, to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim the Lord's favor, and to be our righteousness. And this was not an accident, but by the initiation and hand of the Father. God sent forth his Son. The scripture here says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Notice the next phrase, born of woman and born of under the law. Born of woman, born under the law. Born of woman speaks of his humanity. When it says that he's the son, that speaks of his deity. We talked about this in our Galatians study, but it's interesting that he doesn't say um, born of man and woman. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't, it does sound odd to say born of woman. Someone says, well, who's your parents? Well, my mom's name is Tammy. Okay, and who's your dad? Well, I just told you my mom's name is Tammy. (laughs) That's strange, right? In biblical biblical lineage, you would always trace back through the man. And so what's happening here? Paul, I believe, is pointing us back to the fall. He's saying Jesus was born of woman, born of Eve. It was promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head. And so Paul is perhaps alluding to that here. Uh, Obviously, Uh, Jesus came at just the right time, sent from the Father. And so God's timing is sufficient, and God's Son was sent. But there's one more important thing we learn from this verse, and we learn about Christmas. Number three, Christmas teaches us that God's work in creation, his ultimate work in creation, is salvation. And this is for and to the glory of God. You see, Paul says that Jesus was born under the law. And if you've been here for the entirety of our Galatians series, you understand this idea of being born under the law. It means that Jesus was fully obedient to God's commands. He was born to Jewish parents. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was dedicated in the temple. He celebrated the annual feasts and the holy days and followed the Mosaic law to a T. He was born under the constraints and the curse of the law. And so in this statement, Paul is saying that Jesus is born under the law and that makes him the spotless lamb without sin or blemish who takes away the sin of the world. It would be absolutely necessary for Jesus to be born of woman and born under the law and yet not to break the law even in one area. I've heard some pastors say Jesus broke the law. No, he, that would make him a sinful savior. No, he didn't stumble in one area or break one command because to do that, as we know, is to break the sum of it. Yeah. And so Jesus was sent, notice the next part, uh, verse 5 says, to redeem those who are under the law. So the purpose of Jesus' coming to the glory of God was to redeem, to redeem. He was on a mission of love. Jesus' name itself actually means Savior. He came to redeem. And what does it mean to redeem? Redemption means to buy back. If you watch any Christmas movie today, there's a lot of debate over which ones are good Christmas movies and which ones are throwaways. I have my personal list, and we don't need to get into that. But uh, almost every Christmas movie has with it the theme of redemption, the idea of getting something back in the end or redeeming it back. And this concept uh, is a reminder that God sent his son because you and I cannot redeem ourselves. Paul said, if righteousness were attained apart from the cross, apart from Christ's coming, then Christ died for nothing. This is why Jesus came. We cannot redeem ourselves. We can't pay for our own sin. We need someone to pay it for us. And yet as we look around, none of us can do it because we have to pay for our own. And so that means we need a sinless person to be born under the law and yet still willing to redeem all of us and die in our place. So he says that he was born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. That is what you and I have received. And like any good gift, you have to receive it. Some of you are giving gifts this year and you're hoping that the person will receive it. And it's rare that someone says, I'm not receiving your gift. I'm not even going to open it. That's a rarity. When someone gives you a gift, you take it. You receive it. Unless it's fruitcake. Then you don't take it. You re-gift it. <laughs> Someone's like, I love fruitcake. Okay, good, there's one of you. All right, so God is inviting us into his family through adoption as sons, and that's not an empty promise. Think of it. Is there anything that God can promise that he cannot keep, that he cannot fulfill? There's a man named Russell Herman. He was 67 years old. He was a carpenter, and he died in 1994. And when they found his will, they were quite surprised. His will included an incredible amount of bequests. So in his plan for his distribution of all of his assets, he promised more than two billion dollars for the city of East St. Louis. He promised a billion and a half for the state of Illinois. He promised two and a half billion for the national forest system. And to top it off, he decided to help our government get out of debt and he left six billion dollars for, or six trillion dollars to pay off our national debt. Wow, what a generous guy. Problem is, Herman's only asset when he died was a 1983 Oldsmobile. (laughs) He made grand pronouncements, but there was no real generosity to back up his promises. Therefore, his promise was meaningless because there's nothing to back it up. Now consider, beloved, consider God. God has promised to save. He has promised that those who are in Christ will be with him. He doesn't make empty promises. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, the whole purpose of the incarnation to the glory of God was redemption, to save to the uttermost, to redeem those who were under the curse and constraints of the law. And David Gusick says this, because Jesus is God, he has the power and the resources to redeem us. And because Jesus is man, he has the right and the ability to redeem us. He came to purchase us out of the slave market from our bondage to sin and the elements of the world. So church Christmas teaches us that God's timing is absolutely sufficient. He's in control, he's in charge, he's sovereign, and he's good, and he's working all things out according to the counsel of his will. And on top of that, he's working it out for the good of those who love him, called according to his purposes. All of this is according to the praise of his glorious grace. And you and I today, in whatever scenario we're in, whatever situation we're in, we can rest in God's perfect plan. Christmas teaches us that. It teaches us that God sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but receive eternal life. Christmas teaches us that God's work in creation and in your life is towards redemption. And that redemption is available to those who would believe. This morning, have you trusted Christ for your salvation? Have you repented of your sin? Realizing that apart from the work of God in Christ, today you stand condemned. You stand before the wrath of a holy and righteous and true God. And apart from what Christ has done on your behalf, and apart from you repenting and receiving that, you will stand condemned. Do you know today that Christ is sufficient to save you and have you placed your hope for salvation not upon your own works but upon his finished work on your behalf. We're gonna close and I'm gonna invite our worship team forward and we're gonna sing a familiar song about the holy night when Jesus was born. But ironically for some of us as we've been talking about redemption and new birth and joy, for some of us this time of year does not represent joy. For some of us, this time of year represents sorrow and loneliness and loss and confusion. But I want to encourage you today that Jesus, even in our human weakness and sadness, that Jesus is with us. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, there's nothing like knowing that someone has been kind of in your shoes. They've walked through a tragedy that you've walked through. And there's some things that I've never endured as a person. But some of you have endured this. Some of you have been with a loved one, even this year, holding their hand as they slipped away from life into death. Some of you have felt what it's like to be given divorce papers. Some of you know what it's like to be unemployed or to hear the doctor give you a prognosis you weren't expecting this year. Some of you have chronic pain that, have, that has flared up in new ways that you never expected. And if someone came up to you this morning and said, listen, I know exactly what you're going through. I've been through that exact scenario. And I can empathize with you and you're gonna make it through. And here's how I made it through. That's, So encouraging versus someone who says, I don't know, I've never dealt with that before. And yet this is what God has done. You see, he's not the manager sitting in the office, barking orders out to the sales floor. He's the one who puts on his apron and who takes to the street. He's the one who's acquainted with sorrow, acquainted with our suffering. He knows the lure of temptation and the fear of standing alone in righteousness. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by friends to be mocked, even to be spit on. He understands what it means to lose someone you dearly love and to stand at the graveside and weep. Jesus can sympathize if we've been misrepresented or we've been judged or we've been forgotten or mistaken or abandoned or beaten or shamed or lied about or even cut off from a loved one because the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And So the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, here's our response, let us therefore come boldly to the throne, not of legalism, but to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Today you need mercy, you need grace, it's available for you. But he says, let us come boldly to the throne. At just the right time in my life, Christ came and saved me. Has he been at work in your life today? If you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm gonna be available today in the back near the photo booth as we close with this song. And I wanna invite you, in a moment we'll all stand to sing this song. I wanna invite you personally, if you've never trusted Christ, you've never placed your faith in him, and said, I wanna go from death to life, from darkness into light, I'm gonna be back there. I wanna pray with you, and I wanna offer you the hope of eternal life from the word of God. So let's bow our heads together. I wanna pray for you this morning. Father, we thank you for what we have in Christ, for who we have in Christ. We have our righteousness and our redemption and our hope. And this morning, we thank you that hope has come, that joy has come, that life has come, that in Moses we have the law, and yet in Christ we have grace and truth. So let us approach the throne of grace with confidence this morning, knowing that we can receive help in our time of need. We think of that, O holy night, Lord, the fact that the gospel has come to us, And, Lord, I pray that we'd be responsive to that good news this year. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. And if you want to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, turn from your sin. Join me in the back for prayer. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m., at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisishoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.